Now, so many comments about that word. In fact, I had two comments about that word today, which was kind of cool. I like using words that people talk about. I guess the first thing we should do before we go to the first slide is define what agnosticism is. Now, all the apologists in this room should know exactly what that means because we've dealt with this. Uh, and, and no, it's not Gnosticism because the, the Gnostics mean, were definitely an issue, uh, a problem for Paul and the disciples. John dealt with them as well, the Gnostics. But this is not the Gnostics, this is agnostics, which is quite the opposite thing. If the Gnostics claim to have special knowledge, <coughs> special knowledge, they came to the disciples in the Christian church and they say, listen, the gospel you believe in is incomplete. We have special knowledge. God has spoken to us in a special way and you must hear what we've got to say. And then John and, and Paul and them said, don't listen to those guys. They don't have special knowledge at all. <laughs> Claim they do, but they're, they're, but they're wrong. That's what gnostic means. It means knowledge or special knowledge, to be enlightened. Agnostic means quite the opposite. Can someone tell me what agnostic means? What's that? Okay. It, it, oh, yes? Perfect. That's what I'm looking for. It's not just a. Um, it's not just an identifier that claims I'm just ignorant. I'm just a bit doted, and at some point maybe the light will turn on. It's what Gary says. It's literally that there's certain things that just can't know. And if you claim that you know, then you're just wrong. So the classic agnostic that that generally we see in our culture today is is usually a strong or hard agnostic. Most of them, like in the kind of, we talk about like in a kind of pure academic way are the hard agnostics where it says that just generally we can't know. For instance, claims about God. And that's been the issue for the last 100, 200 years with David Hume and, 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 and all the modern philosophers and thinkers of after him have said because we can't really see God we can't and hear from God in a really verifiable way. We therefore cannot really know that there's a God. And if you can't really know there's a God, you can't know there's a God if you're honest to yourself. And they're really, God talks meaningless. Okay, that's kind of how it means now. However, in the Bible, Jesus is going to deal with the Pharisees. And they're going to deal with agnosticism in a kind of different way. More of the softer version, which is the kind of, <laughs> kind of version. Like, I can't be bothered. And if I ignore the problem, if I ignore the issue, it'll just go away kind of agnosticism. You know what I'm saying? It's like, if I don't deal with Jesus, then I won't have to actually be accountable to Jesus when the time of judgment comes. And there are many in our society, again, who says, listen, if I don't think about God, and I don't think about Jesus, then when I enter the pearly gates, I'll just say to God, hey, not enough information has been delivered to this simple mind, and he will have to forgive me. Is that a safe thing to do? Is that the right thing to do? Well, let's find out. First slide. So the authority of Jesus is questioned. In Matthew 21, starting in verse 23, and the folly of agnosticism. 
when they simply choose to doubt. You know, it's that whole kind of like putting your head in the ground, the kind of uh, the, the, the image of, a, the, of the ostrich. It goes, boop, sticks his head in the ground and, and pretends see no evil, hear no evil, think no evil. Hey, don't see it, don't acknowledge it, doesn't exist type of agnosticism, which is, again, very much so pertinent in our culture today. That's kind of what, the, what Jesus is going to encounter here with the um, elders or the Pharisees possibly here and the chief priests in the temple. And as we know, Jesus is in the temple. He's in Jerusalem. He's been in Jerusalem. He's been demonstrating his authority. He's been healing. He's been teaching. He's been doing amazing things. He's turning tables over. He is just, he is demonstrating his authority all over Jerusalem, specifically in the temple, which is brave and brazen because the temple belongs to God. And Jesus is here saying, here I am. This temple belongs to me and I'm going to clean it up and I'm going to do right ministry, healing, teaching, delivering real ministry. And then these guys, these, these, these who are supposed to be ministering, supposed to be caring for the people, right? The chief priests, the elders, you know, and we're going to see the Pharisees as well here. So maybe the elders refers to the Pharisees possibly. Maybe it's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all the other kinds of ECCs, you know, all the different people who are supposed to be caring, feeding, teaching, encouraging, growing the people, caring for the people. And they're not, like we saw earlier, how like they have the table set up in, in, the, um, in the courts. And, and, and those tables were, were used as instruments to rip people off, to charge them high interest rates or, or, or conversion rates, if you will, um, forcing them to buy things they don't need in order to do something that they are, that they should do, they ought to do, they, they really need to do, and that's you know, providing the temple sacrifices. I mean, this is what God told them to do at the time, so they have to do it, yeah? But yet, they're, they're, being, they're being burdened, under a burden, and the burden is corruption. You know, so, the, so, so the people who are supposed to be caring for the people, the chief priests, the elders, aren't really doing their job. But here is Jesus, and Jesus is excellent. Jesus is our example, he's our model at how to take care of people. He doesn't think of himself first. He thinks of the others. He doesn't think of what makes him feel good and what gives him comfort and joys and pleasures. He thinks of other people. Here he is, serving, serving and serving. And also he, and it's not just that he serves in his own strength and his own power, even though he is God and he, it is, in, in a sense, it is his own power, but it is a spiritual thing. You know, he was baptized, the spirit of God came upon him, and then his ministry began. So let's recognize that if Jesus waits for the Holy Spirit to come upon him to do his ministry, he told the apostles, like two, to wait until the day of Pentecost, where they were in the upper room, for the Holy Spirit to fall upon them. So do we. We cannot get out of this room. We cannot go out and serve God really, truly, and effectively unless that dove, that spirit, that power of God falls upon us all. We can have right intentions, but if we are doing things in the flesh, like Paul warned us in the book of Galatians, you know, what we've begun in the spirit, are we going to complete it in the flesh? All we're going to do is wear ourselves out. We cannot complete, we cannot fulfill ministry in the flesh. It has to be saturated by the spirit of the powerful spirit of the living God. So, side note, here we are, let's read the words. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, again, things he was doing, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him and they questioned his authority. By what authority? Authority, the word here defined, the power of authority influence 
Well, who do you think you are to influence people? And tell me what they ought and ought not to do. The right or a privilege to teach, to instruct, to show the way. By what authority are you doing these things? What things are they talking about? Well, he's teaching. He's instructing. He's, he's giving people, you know, knowledge about God. Things that were reserved for the chief priests and the elders. So they're, yes, their toes are being stepped upon here. But rightfully so. Frankly, because, as he's going to illustrate later on, they're not doing their job. And somebody's got to do it. And if the chief priests, the elders, the religious leaders in any age, in any generation aren't doing their job, God's going to send someone to do the job. So what authority do you have to do these things, they ask. And who gave you this authority? Okay? Again, I put here a list of some of the things he's doing. And I've already mentioned Overturning tables, healing people, receiving praise from the children of the children, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, you know, praise be the, the, the you know, um, he who comes in the lineage of David, yada, yada, teaching. And he's teaching, which we see here. So Jesus replies, here's his answer. What authority? I love when Jesus says this. I will, ask, I will answer your question with a question. <laughs> I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing this. And the reason why he's asked this question is he's checking their hearts. Are you guys honestly looking or are you playing games? Okay? Now, Jesus isn't playing games. People might say, well, why does he answer the question? That seems a bit cheap. It seems a bit cheeky. But no, he's checking their hearts. If they were genuine and their questions were genuine, he would give a right answer. Like he did say with Nicodemus who came to him and asked him about the kingdom of God. He answered them seriously and he gave them an excellent, heavy-duty theological answer. But here, he knows their questions are loaded. So he says, well, let me ask you a question to check your motives. John's baptism. Let's talk about that. Here's the thing that Jesus knows that they struggle with. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven, i.e. from God? Or is it of human origin, i.e. some kind of human construction, some kind of cult or thing? This is a proper dilemma for them. And you're going to see why. Because they don't want to answer that it comes from God. Because then they're going to be stuck in recognizing that. Because John the Baptist was a forerunner. He pointed Jesus, right? And so if John is from God, and he points to Jesus, and Jesus is from God. So they don't want to answer that, yeah? But they also don't want to answer that his ministry is just purely human. Because then, because it was full of miracles, just like Jesus' ministry. Jesus could say, look at my ministry. But he didn't. He goes, look at John. Let's start with John, and then we'll get to me. And people saw John's ministry as being powerful, wonderful, expressive, prophetic. And they don't want to, and so they got to be careful because they have a political interest as well. So they're kind of, they're stuck in a dilemma. So they discussed it amongst themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask them, why don't you believe in him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people. Like I say, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, the classic agnostic answer, we don't know. Oh. I was actually, my, my slide was going to be like, oh. I was going to be my opening slide, a shrug shoulder. But I couldn't find one that I liked. Oh. That would have been pretty funny, actually. I'll remember that for next time. So he says this, well, you don't know? Then I won't answer your question. Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. However, he's going to make it very clear in the next few verses by whom is authority. But first, he's going to, well, actually, let's talk about Gnosticism some more, actually. Let's just do that. Next slide. 
Let's ask it. Because here we have an answer, in a sense, right? They say, I don't know. And I don't know is their answer. It's not, the, it's not, it's not a clever answer by any means. If it isn't, you know, it's, it's almost like it's, it's refusal to answer the question answer. You know what I'm saying? Because the answer is, yeah, it comes from God or it comes from man. Right? That's, that's, those are the two options. But to say, I don't know, is an answer that's not a real answer. And is that really a good and safe answer? Which, I mean, come on. We all know people in our lives who, who like that answer. Ah, I just don't want to talk about it. I don't want to deal with it. Don't know. Well, let's see what Romans has to say about that. What Paul says about it in the book of Romans. Romans 1 18 to verse 20, it says this, the wrath of God. Wow, when you start with words like that, that should get your attention, yeah? The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress, suppress, hold back, keep the truth hidden, suppress the truth by their wickedness. That is what's going on here. That is... A serious, genuine, worldwide, historical problem. The suppressing of the truth. The hiding, the not dealing with reality kind of stuff. Why? Because people don't want to be accountable to their own sin. Their own wickedness. Their own wrongdoing. So if they don't see it, and also be frank with you, and if people in their lives don't agree with them or, or accept their method of hiding the real issues then they don't want them around. You're going to tell me about this Jesus? I don't want you around. I don't mind if you're my friend, but don't be throwing your gospel Bible stuff down my throat. They, don't, they, they want to suppress the truth. Why? Because they don't want to be held accountable to their wickedness, frankly stated. So think about it. Who is this charge against? Is, is the suppressor, or this suppressing, this doubting, atheism? Agnosticism, skepticism, or something similar. I mean, there's a lot of words we can use to, to define it. You know, there's a lot of words we can use to define it. Well, I, I don't want to think about God because I'm a doubter. I want to think about God because I'm an atheist. I want to think about God because I'm, you know what I'm saying? But regardless, it's just wickedness, yeah? Since, and here we go, here's some justification on God's part. Since what may be known about God, all that we need to know about God, all the evidence that is sufficient. To know God is plain to them. It's in plain sight. Even the most ignorant person in the whole world can see it. It's plain as day. Because God has made it plain to them. You see? It couldn't be any simpler any simpler to see how obvious God's existence is. This, again, is what we've referred to in our apologetics class back way back when as the teleological argument. We see God through his creation, basically, yeah? He makes it very clear through creation. Again, he goes on to say, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities. So things that we see and we talk about God that's invisible, that we cannot see, we can know so much about him by what we actually do see. Again, for since the creation of the world's God's invisible qualities, and it goes to define his eternal power, as divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Again, the teleological argument in the most classic sense. It's clearly seen by what he has made. Remember again last week, I talked about how I was driving home from, from, from either East Kilbride or Glasgow. And I was going tr- trucking it down the M8. It was a beautiful day. It was clear. It was probably a clear evening or something like that. So close to summer. And I was just taking it out how 
awesome, God's beauty, not what he's done, what he's created, you know, and I was giving him praise. That is kind of what he's seeing here. You can see God through the clouds. You know, his face might not pop through the clouds, but you can see him through his creation, through what he's made. You can look up into the stars, deep, far in the vast stars, you can see God's handiwork. You can look in a microscope at the most smallest, <laughs> you know, details of, 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 of the construction of material things and the substance of things, and you can see God's thumbprints. You know what I'm saying? So no matter how deep and small you look or how vast and wide you look, you can't avoid seeing God's handiwork. That's what we're looking at here. Clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So that people are without excuse. So is agnosticism a good and safe answer? No. Next slide. Beware. Be warned. Be prayerful of those in our lives. Be Protect your heart and your mind against these things. So Jesus is going to illustrate the neglect. So I did a little bit go off there and talk about agnosticism a little bit because in the folly of it. And, and, and it's pertinent here because the reality is in their stance, in their state, in their decision to, to not deal with the issues, what happens as a result is neglect. Yeah? Refusing to deal with the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. The people who are supposed to be caring for people, these leaders, yeah? are neglecting their duties. And because they're neglecting it, they're going to be held accountable to that neglect. Just like a mom or a dad. If you neglect your children, you're going to be accountable to the state, you know, the authorities of the state, you know, whatever they may be, right? So, so neglect is, is a problem. It's a negative thing. It's a, it's a bad thing. It's naughty <laughs> on these religious leaders. And Jesus is going to illustrate that in this parable, okay? Parables, if you take them at face value, they're so infinitely simple to get. I remember when I was in Bible college, they used to always say to us, oh, you shouldn't teach parables until you're, you know, well matured in the ministry. And there is an element of truth to that because we tend to load it full of nonsense. <laughs> but if you take them as illustrations and you think about what Jesus is talking about and you read the illustrations as our illustrations and we try to reserve the right to fill it full of nonsense... You can get what he's trying to say like that, thinking and remembering that he was sons, okay? He went to the first son and said, son. So think about it, like if you're mom or dad, you have two children, okay? You ask the first one, go and work today in the vineyard. Okay, for your sake, maybe you don't have a vineyard, maybe you have a back garden. Go clean up the back garden, okay? Two sons. One, you ask him, go clean up the back garden, okay? And he says, I will not. But later he changed his mind and he goes. Okay? Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. And he answered, I will. I will, sir. Yes. So polite. Not only did he say I will, but he said I will, sir. Very polite. Oh, fantastic. Good, good on you. But he did not go. Okay, think of the situation. I'm, I'm sure it's, it is easy, isn't it? It's simple. I mean, I'm a, I'm a dad, and so I can see this happening all day long. Usually I get the negative response with a negative, <laughs> negative comment with a negative response. But, but anyway, so, so you get the idea. One says no, but does it. The other one says yes, but doesn't do it. Which of these two did what the father wanted? And that's the issue. We're trying to illustrate a point to the people standing about him. For instance, disciples, or in this case, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees get the point, and we'll see that at the end of the sermon. They get the point. They understand what Jesus is trying to say here. So try to put yourself in the shoes of the Pharisees. Now don't, 
not to be a Pharisee. Maybe you can be someone, a bystander who's just hanging out watching. What's going on here? Who's Jesus talking to? You know, and just pretend like you're here listening to Jesus talk to the Pharisees as he tells a story. So he goes and says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. So a man teaching, disrespecting God's authority. So I think, the, I think these, these guys here um, rightfully understand what Jesus is saying, and they answer it correctly. Yes, the first one actually does the will of the Father. The first they answered. The one who says no, but does it. You know, he repents. He changes. Yeah? So the question is, in this illustration, simply put, what is worse? To say no to God's authority than to repent or to say yes to God's authority and then ignore him. The reason why I put the word authority is when God tells you to do something, like a father who's responsible for the home, yeah? Go do it. There's, a, there's, there's an amount of authority there, yeah? There's the authority. Dad, you know, he, if, if he tells the children to do something, there's that authority that, that dictates that you ought to do what you're being told. The same thing with our Heavenly Father. If God tells us to do something or tells his leaders to do something or whatever and we say no, that is... Basically, us either not acknowledge, think about him. But these people are closer to God because they're, you know, they may have started off wrong, but they're changed. The ones who say no, but actually do the will of God, they're in a better, they're in a better position. So Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, these are the sinners, the, 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 the naughty ones of society, the, the undesirables, the ones that, mm, these guys certainly aren't going to heaven. These people certainly do not know God's will. These people certainly are not a part of God's holy kingdom. You know what I'm saying? Oh, these people are the low lives of society. We don't want to talk about them. We don't even want to ring, as he says, the kingdom of God ahead of you. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe. This that he's talking about is the teaching, the repenting. I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John, again, the issue here he's trying to talk about is their idea, their opinion, their attitude about John. John came to show you the way of righteousness. John came to show. And we know what the way of righteousness is. John, what we know classically about John's ministry, he's a pointer, he's an indicator. Prepare the way for, for God, for the Messiah, for the Lord, Jesus Christ. And he says, he showed you the way to righteousness. And you're looking at him and you're arguing with him right now in the temple. You do not believe him. You do not believe John. And they, they certainly don't believe Jesus. Okay? But these horrible people, these reprobate, dirty, base people, tax collectors and prostitutes, they do believe. And that gives them a right standing with God. They are in Scott, but they don't do the will of God. They're in bad shape. Worse off than these sinners who have said their whole lives, no, God, I will do what I want to do. Testimony of sinners. They've changed. Their lives are changing. They're turning to God. Their testimony is bold and bright. And our testimonies are bold and bright to a dying world. But like the dying world who neglects to acknowledge the testimony of sinners who change, repent, so are these people who say, yes, God, but don't do the will of God. They say, yes, God, we will serve you. We will be Pharisees and temple chiefs. I mean, 
Yet, I will disregard you and your authority, but repent. They've changed. And their ch- change is so powerful. So powerful. It's a testimony. It's an example. It's evidence of God's power and God's might in people's life. These people reject it. They refuse it. And that is a bad place to be in. Go on, Gary, to the next one. And then he illustrates again what is going on. So what is going on right here, right now? What has been going on? What is the problem? And here he is. Here's the problem, guys. So sit up and listen. That's what he's saying here to these Pharisees, these, 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 these elders, these Pay attention. Listen to another parable. So he's already described the situation. John, he brought, he's an indicator, brought, he showed the way of righteousness. People are changing and their testimony speaks loud and clear. There is no place for agnosticism because the evidence is very clear. But listen, here's the problem. Here's what's been going on and this is what needs to be dealt with. God will deal with it. Okay, here's another parable, another s- illustration. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. Okay, here again, another story. So here again, put ourselves in the story mode. Story mode. Oh, yeah, 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 story mode. Okay, so story mode. Now we see a landowner, someone like a landlord, someone owns property, yeah? And it happens to be a vineyard, a place where they grow grapes. So he put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. So he put a lot of money, he invested in this property. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. So he left these stewards, or in other words, is tenants, farmers. So it's his property, but he kind of left it in the hands of other responsible people to take care of it, to do business, yeah? So he's away. So the owner's away. It's still his property, yeah? But he, you know, he hired these guys to come and care for the land and produce. When the harvest time approached, he sent servants. So because he's away, he sends messengers, servants, to come in and collect, yeah? To collect his fruit. Because it's his fruit. He's the owner, yeah? The tenants seized the servants they beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. So immediately we think, well, they're out of line. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't do that. That's naughty. That's not right. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and they, the tenants treated them the same way. So these tenants are the farmers, the people who are supposed to be caring for it and working for the owner. But the owner sends like these delivery service, if you will, to come and collect. And every time he sends them, they get beat up and killed. So then he goes, okay, that's it. If I send him my son, certainly I'll get a response. Well, a positive response. I'm getting plenty of responses, but they're all negative. But I want a positive response. I want some fruit. I want I wanted to yield the fruit of my crops. So he, last of all, he sends his son. And I think we already get a picture of what Jesus is talking about here, don't we? Yeah, it's pretty clear, isn't it? They'll respect my son, he said. But when the tenants, these farmers, they saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So not only do they want to kill him on the basis of him being another messenger, but they also want to kill him on the basis that he is the heir. He will receive the benefits of his land when the father passes away. So they're waiting for daddy to die. If they kill the son, then maybe just by default, they will inherit the land themselves and become rich and comfortable. Really, really immoral thinking. Real bad, bad, bad wickedness we see here. Come on, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him, threw him out in the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, 
Again, they're thinking, oh, he won't, he won't. We'll get away with it. But he, the owner, will come. He will say, that's it, enough is enough. I'm gonna go, and I'm gonna take care of business. God will take care of business. So when the vineyard's owner comes, what will he do to these tenants? Well, the answer that, that Jesus got is the right answer. So the Pharisees know better, isn't it? We kind of see what the problem is here in the problem that Jesus is trying to deal with with these, um, these religious leaders. Um, yeah, thank you, Greg. So now he's going to explain. He's going to explain these illustrations. He's going to explain. It's nice that he explains things. And let me tell you, his explanations are pretty straightforward and pretty hard-hitting. And the response he gets from these Pharisees, we will see, is not positive. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? So he's quoting some scriptures here. You know, verses, words that that these leaders should be very familiar with. And he says this, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So who's the stone that's been rejected? They're not dumb. They know better. So it's funny how they play ignorant when it comes to really basic questions. When it comes to these really complex stories, these moral or ethical issues, they know the right answer. It's the son in the story, and it's Jesus Christ in reality. Has become the cornerstone. You might kill him, and you might kill him really good, but you won't finish him. Because he might be rejected, but he will become. The cornerstone is, 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 is the part of, the, of a building project that everything else is based upon. It's like the first foundational bit. That everything, and they give him the right answer. They say he will bring the, those wretched, or those wretches to a wretched end. I love that term. The wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants. So he'll give it to other people who will do their job right. Who will give them a share of the crop at the harvest time. So we got the story. It's pretty simple and straightforward. It kind of comes off of. It determines the location. It determines the positioning. It's, it, 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 it's the starting point. Jesus is the starting point of God's kingdom. God's will, God's way. The Lord has done this. And this speaks of the will of God. God says this is a part of the plan. This is how it has to be. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God, again, God's way, and this implies God's will, will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce fruit. So I'm not going to talk about who, what culture group he's talking about here. Because we don't need to. Because I believe it comes from all kinds of different culture groups. Yeah? I think the bottom line is this. Who's willing to produce the fruit? Who's willing to to be like those good tenants who will come and collect the fruit and give it to the father, the owner who who, who deserves it? That's what he's looking for. He's not looking for corrupt people. I don't care what culture group, what society, where you come from. If your intentions are bogus, you're going to be removed. And somebody else is going to come and do the work. The person who comes and does the work can be you and can be I. It can be from any culture group as far as I'm concerned. Gentile, Greek, Roman, Jew, I don't care who you are, what culture group. Jesus made it very clear. It's not necessarily a culture group. It's the one who produces fruit. It's the one who is going to do the job and do it right and do it well. That's why we prayed earlier. We need the Holy Spirit to do what we need to do. And we need to be on our knees to ask God for the Holy Spirit and the power of God in order to produce right fruit. Because we have an opportunity, a privilege, and an honor to serve God. These idiots, sorry guys, these idiots here who are looking at Jesus and denying and playing this silly agnostic game of, oh, I don't know, they don't produce fruit and they're going to be removed. 
And somebody else is gonna come in who's willing to produce the fruit, who will say, I do know, and that's Jesus Christ. I do know, and that is God. I do know what God wants me to do, and I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna produce fruit. Here I am, God. Send me. Let me get involved. Let me get tucked in. Anyone who falls on the stone will be broken to peace, and anyone who it falls will be crushed. Pretty hard language here. Who's he talking about? Who is these anyone's? Well, I think it's very clear by the immediate response that these Pharisees, these chief priests, know exactly who he's talking about, and that's them. And it goes on to say, and we will complete here, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They were neglecting their jobs. They were neglecting their duty. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Again, politically afraid to do anything. Let's sum it up in the last slide. So chapter summary real quick. We'll do this in two minutes at the most. Jesus, we learn in this chapter, chapter 21, is the authority of God. He is the Messiah. Dangerous. God has made himself known through nature. He's made himself known. He made himself very clear to all people. But let us not be foolish like the religious leaders and neglect our calling. Instead, let us rightfully obey God and produce spiritual fruit. He's in the temple in Jerusalem. He's cleaning it up as he ought to because he's the authority. It's his temple. He's cleaning it up. He's healing people. He's receiving praise. He's teaching. question the authority of Christ. They use a technique of doubting. You know, the agnostic, mm, I don't know, how can we know? But that's dangerous. 